We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. This afternoon, expect winter weather conditions, including freezing rain, but not nearly enough for a walk in the snow. Here's Scott Thompson. All right, all right. Hardly. And the kid's looking to build a snowman, I think. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, so uh, a jam-packed show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, this is an, uh, you know, we heard I uh, heard this when I was on holidays. Uh, NHL player, former NHL player Adam Do- uh, Johnson, uh, uh, neck guard, uh, nothing there in, in the neck cut, and and you know what happened there? Just an incredible tragedy. And it's not the first time it's happened, and it probably won't be the last. And many parents of kids who are playing hockey, uh, you know, we think about this, let alone anybody in the NHL. Hamilton Made Solution uh, has come forward. It's been around for a while, actually, and now it's it's obviously taken off with all the interest. And man, you know, um, uh, uh, right now my kid's out with a broken shoulder, so he's not playing <laughs> hockey. He's on the bench. But, you know, this is something I'm certainly going to investigate moving forward as, uh, as uh, obviously, uh, this is a great concern for anybody that plays hockey, especially parents that have kids. And, you know, you get those things that go around the neck and it's like, man, how, how good are they? And especially the, it looks like the hairband around the neck. Is that even worth putting on? So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on this hour. Also, uh, the Trump trials and tribulations continue. Uh, fascinating watching him on the stand. And, and, and daughter Ivanka is going to take the stand or is taking the stand today. We're going to visit with Brian J. Karam to get his take on all of that. I hope somebody's filming it because it would make a great uh, TV show one day. Uh, and of course, the weather forecast, uh, we're sitting sort of on that, uh, uh, threshold before, uh, you know, the big stuff actually comes. Obviously, warmer weather coming up later on in the week. Uh, but again, in certain areas around us going to get touched with some winter-like conditions, freezing rain and such. So be aware of that. We'll talk about all of that coming up a little later on with uh, Anthony Farnell, Chief Medi- uh, Meteorologist for Global News. Also, we haven't talked about this in a while, um, but the ongoing issue in Stony Creek, uh, we get an update on the stinky landfill story. Where is it now? Uh, what happens as we head into uh, the colder months, it's starting to gain some more political attention. Uh, obviously, the situation has changed in the last 10 years. So what does this warrant moving forward? We'll have that discussion coming up a little later on. Also, uh, G7 have released a statement on the Israel-Hamas war calling for a humanitarian pause. Uh, what does this mean and what sort of weight does it carry? How do we move forward on this issue? We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And uh, Trudeau's handling of the carbon tax, offering it to some, uh, with the exception of Atlantic Canada, who uh, seemed to carve out their uh, a hold on all of this for the next three years, which, of course, has just uh, enraged the rest of Canadians uh, and wondering where their rebate is coming. Uh, a can of worms worth opening just to gain the votes back that have been lost in Atlantic Canada. Um, it's going to be hard to see whether uh, that will be the way forward for them. We'll talk about that. And of course, the big story locally, HSR on track for a strike. It looks like uh, it is all going to go down uh, as of Thursday if nothing happens in the meantime. We'll talk to Eric Tuck, president of ATU Local 107, about all of that coming up on the show as well. 
We all remember the uh, tragedy suffered by former NHL player Adam Johnson skate in the neck. There has been a rush of orders from around the world for the Aegis Neck Guard. It's made right here in Hamilton by a Hamilton company. A very different product as it uses a proprietary technology to protect from impact and slash rather than the standard bulk foam products now on the market. Joe Camillo is with us, owner of Nico Apparel Systems and Aegis Impact and is here now. Joe, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes. Good morning or good afternoon, Scott. It's been a crazy day. I, I got to say, uh, it was a great that was a great pitch that you just made. I want to thank you. I, I'll have to bring you on. You you know you know our product well and and why it's different. Well, you know, it's interesting because I had two kids playing hockey. One still does. So uh, always has been a concern, especially when you see different uh, variations of the product. And the sad thing here is, Joe, is unfortunately it takes a tragedy like we've seen uh, from this former NHL player, Adam Johnson, in order to draw more attention to this sort of thing. But how did this all start for you? How did you get on, on this track? Well, as a, as a hockey parent who never played hockey as a kid um, and in apparel, because that's what I do is I make clothing, is when my kids put on all their equipment with, with their chest protector, elbow pads, shin guards, pants, and I looked at the neck guard and I thought, wow, for a, for a product that's supposed to protect, it didn't seem to be really up to, up to snuff. And I saw it, it was really lightweight, you know, the kids could move it around, it was loose. I, I, I always felt we can do something better. And, and this was way back, you know, back in early 2000s. And then I, I noticed and watched this show on Discovery with uh, a product company called D3O that makes this, this material that hards on impact. And, you know, with my apparel, apparel background, combined with the tenacity of getting to these guys, because it took four years until the death of, of a Mr. Kyle Funditas out of Alberta who took a strike um, to the throat. I then developed the neck guard, which is patented and includes both 360 cut protection. We use Kevlar along with the impact on the front. So we made it comfortable, we made it washable, and we made it safe. And you did it several years ago. How has it been selling up until now, before now? Before it was doing well, like you know, we're not we're not one of the big brands, as you know. Um, we're yeah. a niche player. We we've come in into the market, uh, developing something unique, and we'd like to we'd like to thank all the people in, in the group. So we're in the major retailers such as Hockey Life and Sport Check, as well as as retailers throughout Canada and in the U.S. and overseas. Um, but unfortunately, w- what happened with with the death of Mr. Johnson on that Saturday? Um, what really was, I think, uh, awakening everybody uh, about the dangers uh, of the sport and how easily it can be prevented if you if you have the proper protection and and sales. Like I said, have been it's it's not just about the sales. Like I'm grateful for the sales, but we've been preaching for this for a long time, and I can tell you that that a lot of people at first, you know, they like it, but they'll they'll go for the cheaper neck guard. Our our, our neck guard is is more expensive, not outrageous. But we always felt that for your body and peace of mind, it's worth a few dollars more. And I'll ask you, Joe, what is it worth? What does it sell for? Well, I think in Sport Check, um, you, you could buy it for, I think it's listed around forty six ninety five. I'm trying, you know, I, I it's around. The so 50 bucks, Joe. I mean, we're t- I, I thought you were going to say like, you know, 550 bucks. It's like 50 <laughs> bucks. You know what? If you want to pay 550, Mr. Thompson, I'm, I'm coming no. down to the radio station right now, but. 
But I'll no. tell you that, that you know why? I'll, I'll but that's not why. a bad price. That's not a bad price point, Joe. Considering, like, what do you spend mm-hmm. on a helmet? Exactly. It, you know, you spell three. You can spend three or four hundred dollars on a helmet. It depends. Like, you 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 can buy a hundred dollar helmet. You can buy, but again, it's all about the comparative safety. Like, again, and the features of the product. Well, we're offering because I'm the I'm just the guy. I'm the guy that puts it all together. There's no middle management. I'm I'm the bottle washer and and the cook. I do everything. We have a great team. We have designers here. We know and we've done this for a long time. I've been manufacturing product and and you probably don't remember, but you interviewed me when COVID nineteen came out. We worked with Hamilton Health Sciences and I. And I went and built, you know, surgical uh, masks, and we yeah. shipped all over oh, Canada. You probably don't remember yeah. that, but I did yeah. that as yeah. well. No, so I do. I learned how to pivot. I learned how to pivot. And uh, coming from this town, you got to do it. You got to be. So, be so what kind? What kind of support, Joe, have you received for this? Who's using it? I mean, like, is, is there any interest in in leagues uh, jumping on board? Uh, you know, especially in the wake of this tragedy. Well, there there are people. So we're we're you know in leagues. So we've had we've had famous people. Of course, one of our our best spokesperson was uh, Ryan Ellis, um, who helped me years ago uh, promote the neck guard on NHL. Uh, Sarah Nurse also at the very beginning uh, promoted the neck guard. In terms of leagues, they're they're controlled by under contract, so it's not yeah. something that you can just jump in. But in terms of the parents, like in terms of of just people that want a great product because again we're we're sold we're selling all over and you know we're, we sell a lot believe it or not through Amazon a lot in the US and in Canada so they recognize consumers now are becoming more educated and and our business has really like we've sold thousands in the last week and we've sold out on certain sizes so so what what is the great di- product what is the difference between this one, Joe? Just to you know, paint a picture for people. What's the difference between this neck guard and others? Typical. We know that it goes around the neck. There's some that look like a hairband. Those I don't know what they do, and then That's some that right. will even come down. Uh, some that will even come lower down on the chest. So, so our the difference in our neck guard is you're, you're correct. So a lot of them do not have 360 uh, cut protection. So the 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 Kevlar, the Aramid yarn goes around the circumference of the whole neck. That's one big difference. Because it costs money to do that, you can save money by not um, having full coverage, especially on the back of the neck. The the amount of uh, the material that we use is a nylon spandex. It's it's uh, inner outer layer with a fusing as well, so it's 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 comfortable. It stretches. So a lot about neck guards, they're usually really static. They don't move, right? You know, you have shirts that move, but you have this thing on your neck, and it becomes uncomfortable. Hence, that's why players don't want to wear it. So we made it comfortable. We also allowed the insert that has the ability to absorb impact many times to be removed for washing. So, you know, moms and dads whose kids have the neck guard and they stink, they just got to throw it in the wash and it's like new again. So the way we designed it is to make it practical, you know, and, and it's certified. Every year, any neck guard uh, mandated by Hockey Canada has to pass ENQ certification. And we spend a lot every year, which is also part of the barriers to entry to this product category right. that you need to do that. And we're, we, we're just fortunate enough to, uh, to be able to do it. Um, like I said, it, it, it wasn't overnight. It took years to, to perfect yeah. it and we're still going to continue to perfect it. We're still moving forward. Your website, Joe, to get one. Agesimpact.com. 
All right, Joe Camilla with us, owner of Nico Apparel Systems and Aegis Impact. Uh, look it up, uh, Google it all, and um, it's common sense when you think about it. We'll see if it changes minds. Joe, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Yeah, no, thank you. I just thank you. And in case you haven't noticed, I thought it was a new um, reality TV show, but no, no, it's just Donald uh, on the stand or in the courtroom. The, he had to testify yesterday. Today, his daughter Ivanka taking the stand in the New York fraud trial. Brian J. Karam is with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst, uh, analyst for CNN, and is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing doing as well as can be expected. How are you with the weather? Uh, well, you know, I'm thinking of you down there with your popcorn and beer in your hand. This must be incredible <laughs> to watch. So, so what's I, I, it? I cashed in the beer for bourbon. It's heavier stuff at this point. <laughs> I, I can see at this stage of the game, we're we're in the ninth inning. Hopefully, you never know. You yeah, might want to go for the it's hard a long stuff. game, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, anyway, so uh, Sal, give us a, a sort of a, an update as what happened yesterday. We saw that he was getting a little feisty there with the judge. She basically said. Uh, to the to the lawyers get control of them or I will. What does that mean? Where did that go? Well, I think everybody should remember that they're only arguing about the amount of money. I mean, Trump signed the reports, case closed. They got a summary judgment. And now his daughter and his sons have all come forward and said, look, we didn't have anything to do with the numbers. That's dad. And dad said, I signed the reports. What more is there? This this company was run by Donald Trump the way Donald Trump wanted. So when Donald Trump wanted numbers, the kids weren't involved. They Who did they go to? Michael Cohen and Weissert and, and the crew. And they cooked the books together and then they sent them on. That's essentially what the prosecution is is saying. And and that's what Donald has to and, and has trouble dealing with. So it's. uh at the end of the day, it really just boils down to Trump signed the reports, case closed. Now, if you're talking about the amount of money, it could be anywhere from $250 million, And it's um, his own attorney, former attorney, Michael Cohen, who said, well, it could be as much as $700 million. And I don't know how much it's going to end up being. My, my sole desire out of all this, having covered this guy for so many years, is that they take Trump Tower turn it into shelter for the homeless, homes for the homeless, <laughs> and all of his property follows the same suit. And then Donald Trump's life will have some meaning. Otherwise, no. So verdict in, gavel down. This is just about money at this point. So yeah, you most know, of he, it. There's, there's some other points to be settled in the main case that we're hearing all about. That's what it is. Yes. And, so, and, it's, and it's before a judge. It's not even before a jury. He's he's it's so beautiful he's got the one guy who should be on his side the judge he's got him angry and he and he's got him he's got this judge doing everything exactly as a judge has to because nobody wants to have to deal with donald again he's his own worst enemy so how does that change the outcome of this considering at this point it's just dollars we're really looking at uh and infuriating the person that makes that determination probably isn't the smartest thing to do right. uh, that, that that being said <laughs> you get it <laughs> see most of us who are cogent understand that fact apparently so, not done. 
So, uh, and the judge said to him, calm down, uh, or, or to his attorneys or such. Does, uh, in the end, w- w- was his point made? Did he do, he obviously hurt himself more than he helped. How does that go into determining how much he pays? I think if the judge is doing his job right, it doesn't mean squat. It only means something for Donald Trump. Donald Trump will use it to try and uh, point at problems with the judge. They will use quotes before their before his uh, loyal followers, and he'll twist it so he's the hero. Both he'll be both the victim and the hero in the same sentence because that's how Donald operates. But for the rest of us, it's going to boil down to the facts and. Uh, he hasn't, as I said, he really hasn't. There's been no fight over the facts. It, it was his company that they've proven that they've inflated and deflated the value at, at you know, someone's whim. And he's the only one who signed the papers and his kids weren't involved. Well, the sole responsibility of all of this is on him. And since he already accepted a summary judgment, he's just arguing over money. So I say, let them argue. And when they figure it out, come back to this with a number. Otherwise, I don't really need to hear from Donnie anymore. But that's and, just me. <laughs> any more options for him once this is they, they they determine a figure? Is that it? Is that all? Or does that just, oh, you know, another delay, another appeal, it's, whatever it's coming Don- down the road? It's Donald Trump. When is it ever all? This yeah. is, this is on, on consuming, no matter if there's no legal redress. We saw on January 6th, if there's no legal redress, he'll create his own. So it's not as if, you know, we haven't been here before. It's that he's finally getting zapped so many times. I don't think he he's he's a mosquito that finally got caught, you know, in the zapper in the back. It was a big <laughs> one, but they got him. I was thinking of that analogy just as you were about to say it. Uh, is is this all helping his campaign, though? I mean, he seems to be as popular as ever. Yeah, right now it is. But, I, you know, it's still a year away and there's so much that can go on between now and 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 it's just it's going to be a never ending cycle in the news. And it I don't know where this ride takes us. And I don't think anybody can honestly say because it's just there are so many variables at this point in time. And any one of them could trip something else. Now I'm starting to sound like a science fiction novel, but it, you know, it's, it's our decisions that we're going to make in the next few months that are going to determine our lives for the next several years or longer. And that's something that Biden has said often, but people don't really contemplate too much because for whatever reason. So it's but these are things we're going to have to figure out not only in the United States, but in Canada and across the world in the next year. And it's and it, you know, key to it is what the American presidency does. I don't think there's any denying that. So, you know, it's going to be an interesting year for all of us. This is my roundabout way of saying it. Mm. So with this and and Ivanka today, the kids are out, they're clean. There's nothing there. It's all him. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it all boils down to to Don. And since he admitted he signed them and, you know, people said that Ivanka threw her husband under the uh, bridge, but, you know, or under the bus. But that's not true. She just testified that he in- introduced her to a banker, which they ended up using. But it, it really doesn't mean much in and of itself just to prove a conduit through which, you know, this guy dealt with Donald. That's it. But she testified that she had no role in her father's personal financial statements, which is what her brothers also said. And so that only leaves Donald left and Donald admits that he signed the paper authorizing, you know, 
But remember, he also said, well, these papers don't mean much. They're, <laughs> but, but they kind of do. <laughs> so that's, that's where he's at. Clearly, these trials, this exposure, whatever his campaigning that he's doing in the courtroom, whatever, have him uh, leading, have, his, ha- have the attention of the American public. Uh, more trials going to derail that? Or is it just going to fuel that fire? Because it doesn't yeah, seem to be that's hurting one of the variables. Point. That's an excellent question. And who knows? It could go either way. I mean, at this point in time in American history, making predictions, like I said, is just, you know, based on previous behavior, you would think, no, we'll do the right thing. But, you know, not so much. <laughs> There's, that's, there, that's the consideration that you have to have today. You take an extra second to go, OK, how far are we willing to go? And um so far, there hasn't been a bottom that the Trump followers won't fall through. And that's not, you know, that that's a black hole no one should fall into. Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author, White House correspondent for Playboy and political analyst for CNN, talking about the trials of Donald Trump, trials and tribulations. As Woo-hoo! always, Brian, fun. <laughs> Thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Yep. You too, my brother. All right. Uh, obviously, pretty cold today, and but it is warming up. And in the next week, it's going to get quite warm. However, depending upon where you are with the precipitation that's coming down, uh, you may see just rain. You may see ice pellets. You may see more than that. Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, and is with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Anthony, are you there? Here we go. Can you hear me now? Yes, Anthony, I can hear you. How you doing? Good. It's uh, way easier than just talking to myself on mute. But uh, uh, we are we are dealing with uh, ice pellets around, and it's just kind of a refresher for me trying to get back into my winter forecasting skills, which uh, are going to for sure come in handy uh, in the months ahead, and, and definitely today. So obviously, it depends on where you are as to what you're getting. Uh, rain in some areas, ice pellets in others. Give us a rundown on what's going on around southern Ontario. Yeah, and we can thank uh, Lake Ontario because it's so early in the season. It's uh, November and the water temperatures are still mild. When we have an east wind right now, uh, it keeps us just a bit above freezing. So from Hamilton through Burlington all the way into uh, Toronto, it is just above that freezing mark. As you go up in elevation, as you get away from the lake, that's where we start to see some problems. Uh, The... um, the um, once you're up into Milton and uh, into Kitchener, Guelph, this is uh, still uh, about minus 0.5. So ice is starting to add up on the trees and even some roads and overpasses are getting slick. So uh, really, it's elevation dependent that we're seeing this afternoon and uh, it continues into the early evening. So is anybody getting snow anywhere? Not yet. No, there uh, is the potential for some wet snow tonight as we look at areas around Georgian Bay, uh, much of cottage country up to the north, uh, maybe a centimeter or two. And then as you continue to track up towards Sudbury and North Bay, this is where 15 centimeters could fall by tomorrow. So there is some snow, but it's uh, pretty far north to get into uh, the white stuff. How does this compare to other years where we are? Where were we last year? A few years. Is this normal? Uh, Yeah, I mean, November normals can range from about 15 degree days to minus fours and fives. And and that when you average it all out comes to comes to what November typically is. So, uh, yeah, last year, 
uh, on this date, we were actually in the upper teens to low 20s. So that just gives you an idea of uh, some of the extremes that we can get in this month. And you also started with this warm-up that we're forecasting. So even though this may be a, a wake-up call for people to get winter tires on and just find where the shovel, the scraper is, after this, I do think by next week, we're seeing above seasonal temperatures and perhaps they last for a week or more with sunshine and mid to upper teens. So there is uh, a lot of hope if you're not quite ready for what's outside now. And it looks like that warm spell is going to last for quite a while, too, as we hit up to the double digits, as you said, like up to 15 or so. Yeah, so I'm still working for the next week on my seasonal forecast, what to expect mm. for the next few months. And I, I just am taking my time because it is uh, some wacky weather as it warms up. And then even December could be a, a mild start. So, yeah, all that plays in. But really, it's a pattern that has El Nino written on it, which is uh, a phenomenon in the Pacific. But it affects all of us, especially as we get into the winter. Uh, so there's there's going to be some some interesting weather, and that's uh, keeps me on on the edge of my seat as we get later in, into the month of November. So obviously, your predictions are your winter uh, forecast. Your uh, how do you put these together if it's you know uh, even at this stage or or or, or uh, later in the fall? I mean, how do you put these together and try to predict what January is going to be like? What February is going to be like? Yeah, we have uh, an increasing number of seasonal computer models. These are the long-range computer models that we use as guidance. They are definitely not gospel. They're definitely not uh, written in stone, but they're basically used to assist us in creating these predictions. And then we look at other things like ocean temperatures. I mentioned El Nino in the Pacific. The Atlantic also is quite warm for this time of year. And all of that plays a role as the seasons adjust and the jet stream starts to change. And then, of course, you factor in climate change and just the fact that we aren't in the same pattern these years as we were in the 70s and 80s. So everything has a bit of a, a, a warm, rosy glass you have to look through when you're predicting the next few months. Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Anthony, thank you so much. Be well. Good luck. All right. Thanks. Take care. All right, so we got some freezing rain uh, in higher elevations and such, uh, and even some maybe light snow up towards cottage country. But again, as Anthony mentioned, as we get into next week, we could see, or we will see, it looks like double-digit temperatures, and those uh, temperatures could rise as high as 15, 16 degrees. So anything we get today uh, or any, uh, you know, any sort of uh, challenges you have today will be short-lived. But as Anthony said, a good reminder of what is to come. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Update on the landfill story. Lots uh, in the East End talking about a stink. And, of course, we've seen a school uh, be postponed in the area as well. Let's bring Kathleen in, who is a resident in the area. Kathleen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Good. What does it smell like today? It's actually gross today. <laughs> um, you, you actually caught us. Uh, so, so for about two weeks, we had a nice little break. Um, and then the last uh, almost week now has been right back to the way that it was. Difference so, between what is any difference in the weather or anything in those two periods of time? Uh, 
I mean, it has obviously gotten a little bit colder. Um, yeah. But what I think, I think what happened is they had to stop pumping for a while. Um, they had to stop removing the leachate because the hydrogen sulfide was 20 times beyond the legal limit. Um, and I think they're back to pumping it again. So as they're kind of stirring it up, maybe, I think that might be what's causing the issue. Uh, does anything seem to be improving in, not necessarily in the stench itself, but in the communication, any more information, um, anything, anything moving forward? Uh, so they were ordered to have better communication with us. And so there is now a monthly meeting, um, that we can attend, um, online with them. Um, so I suppose that's better. Um, they did send out some flyers in the mail, uh, letting us know about those monthly meetings. But that's been pretty much it um, as for communication from GFL. So, and so there hasn't been any of those meetings as yet. Is that accurate? We had one um, on the 16th, I think it was, of October. Um, that's the only one that we've had so far. And so, what was said then? Um, not a whole lot. <laughs> Uh, pretty much the same promises that we've been hearing. Um, dates we were given dates uh, orders, I guess that were that were laid, um, but it seems that that's not being followed. From from my understanding, one of the orders that were placed on them was that as of November first, they had to have the leachate levels down um, almost to to gone, um, and it doesn't seem that that's happened. Um, so I'm not sure where they're going to go with that from here, but. Uh, Clearly, it's not, you know, the orders aren't doing any good. So, uh, What about uh, any any uh, news or information from the city, government of any sort? Um, so, so we actually have a group of people going to City Hall on Monday um, to essentially present officially the, the issue that we're having with the odors. Obviously, they're already aware, but to kind of, you know, present it to them, um, asking for specific things to come of this. Um, and I know, I know, I think it was Chad Collins who spoke saying that he believes that they should be shut down until the smell is taken care of. Um, and, and hopefully that's something that we can push and get more counselors kind of backing us on because at this point, that's exactly what needs to happen. Um, so, so they'll be asking for that. I know that they're looking for tax reductions for, um, the people who are, you know, directly in the area who are being impacted by this. Um, and whoopee do. Yeah. Pardon? <laughs> wow. Well, giving you tax breaks because it stinks. Whoopee do. Just fix the problem. Um, well, yeah, uh, are, definitely are, fix the problem. Uh, is uh, any any chance of it, it's got to the point the city's getting too big, that this should be shut down? Any momentum there to to move it, um, get rid of it, do anything? No, so I haven't heard anything about the shutting down completely of it just to the and, and I don't think that I don't think the city even has that capability. I think that's provincial. Um, there was I don't know if you caught it or not. There was um, uh, the, the city has requested of the province to make some changes to how landfills um, are regulated and give cities uh, veto power on expansion. Of landfills. Right now, they on new landfills, they can say no. Mm. Um, but this one got through because the city doesn't have the power to say no on expansion. And and we're still trying to now. get we're still trying to get the company on the air here. Uh, Kathleen, thanks so much for the update. We'll be in touch. Uh, good luck.
Perfect. Thank you so much. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, the G7 have released a statement, and the G7 issues a unified call for humanitarian pause to the Gaza conflict and the release of hostages. Is one directly tied to the other? Let's bring in John Curtin, director of the G7 Research Group, G20 Research Group, and the Global Health Diplomacy Program at the University of Toronto. And with us now, John, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, I am, and uh, good to be with you. Talk about the G7 coming together, asking for the humanitarian pause, also the release of hostages. Uh, Do we have to see the release of hostages in order to get that humanitarian pause? Uh, No, we don't. Um, If one looks at the uh, sections of the communique, uh, the situation in Israel, Gaza, and uh, the West Bank, uh, the G7 uh, began by unanimously uh, condemning the uh, terror attacks emphasizing Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, And then it called for the immediate release of all hostages without preconditions. Um, That's a direct um, quote. And then, uh, as you noted, uh, it went uh, on and it did call for a humanitarian, not just one pause, but pauses, which is very different uh, than Truce, uh, the other word uh, that some people had uh, wanted. A truce means uh, stop the shooting, uh, a ceasefire. A pause means uh, very limited uh, in um, the space, this crossing, this uh, city, uh, and for the time, could be just a few hours to let the uh, ambulances uh, in or um, out. And that was... um, I think the um, minimum um, position. So uh, the G7 uh, really did accept uh, the argument of uh, President Biden uh, and others uh, that if you have a a truce, a ceasefire, uh, that overwhelmingly uh, gives advantage uh, to Hamas, a chance to arrest their fighters, uh, to resupply their uh, troops, to try and uh, smuggle in more food, fuel, uh, armaments. And it really stops uh, the momentum of the Israeli um, defense forces, uh, which are now rolling uh, very quickly already into uh, Gaza City itself and uh, going down into uh, the tunnels, uh, the center of the network there. So does this statement have impact? What are the chances of a humanitarian pause? Uh, Well, uh, we've already seen some. Uh, a very limited um, duration uh, and uh, geography. Uh, For the past several days, uh, ambulances have been taking critically injured uh, people uh, out. And on the uh, southern border of uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, the one with uh, Egypt, uh, we've seen uh, a regular um, exodus of foreign citizens. And finally, uh, Canadians had their uh, turn. Uh, We got about 50 out. Uh, so far, uh, there's uh, more to uh, go. So that, in a sense, is uh, not a change uh, in the G7 position, uh, not a weakening. Uh, it's just a recognition of uh, reality. And of course, uh, all G7 countries have an overwhelming uh, interest uh, in getting their own people uh, out uh, before um, the uh, fighting escalates and more people die. 
Would the or would a pause or pauses uh, help the hostage situation? Would that move those discussions forward, or or how how would that end up? Would it, any any gains there? Um, I think not. Um, Hamas um, took those hostages uh, rather than just murder them on the spot, as they did so many others, uh, to use them to uh, either deter uh, the Israeli defense forces uh, from using um, more forceful um, means or um, to trade them. You know, let's do a deal. Uh, What they have demanded pretty much from the start is uh, we'll let our hostages uh, go to hundreds. If you, uh, the Israelis, released the 6,000 or more Hamas terrorists, uh, which you've been able to catch, uh, put on trial, and now are keeping in your uh, prison. So it's an immensely uh, unfair uh, demand, even in the uh, numbers. Uh, But of course, after the October uh, 6th murders uh, from Hamas, uh, no Israelis are going to want to see. the Hamas terrorists, all of a sudden, because of an Israeli decision, get 6,000 more uh, terrorists who will immediately go to work killing more Israelis. That is what uh, Hamas, a terrorist organization, is devoted to. That's its whole raison d'etre. Where does this leave the world options? Some of talking about a two-state solution. What are the options here? Oh, well, certainly all the G countries um, in the G7 and many more have uh, for decades uh, agreed that um, at the end of the day, we need a two-state solution. And uh, the communique um, of the G7 foreign ministers uh, reiterated that. Uh, But it's two sovereign states in control of their territory, and those sovereign states are One, Israel, which has to be allowed to exist as a sovereign state. The other is Palestine, Hmm. and not just in name, something called Palestine or Gaza that's actually controlled by the Hamas terrorist organization, a terrorist organization that is devoted to destroying the state of Israel. Yeah. So, unless one's destroys Hamas, you can't have a two-state solution, because as long as it exists, there's a a real danger that there'll be no Israel and no independent sovereign um, Palestine. So I think the G7 uh, really did uh, accurately put first things first. The Hamas terrorists have to be destroyed in the same way that uh, bin Laden and his um, padres after the uh, 9-11 attacks on uh, New York uh, City had to be, uh, and indeed were, uh, destroyed. took some time, uh, but the job got done. Do Palestinians support Hamas, which is a recognized terrorist group? Uh, How do Palestinians separate themselves from the terrorism of Hamas? Is that possible? Uh, what we do know, uh, and it's uh, limited information, but to the extent that there's a free and fair uh, polling uh, in the Gaza Strip, uh, in the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, before October um, 7th, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, it does seem uh, that the uh, Palestinians don't like to live 
under the control of terrorists uh, in their own um, territory? So the simple answer is uh, no. And uh, they certainly do not like um, the death and destruction that's being brought upon them uh, now because of what Hamas has done. What we don't know as they, the Palestinians uh, in the Gaza Strip, desperately look for um, health care, uh, water, uh, fuel, uh, what degree of resentment uh, they have against Hamas, who they know has massive supplies that they're saving for themselves, the Hamas terrorists, and not giving any of it to the Palestinian civilian, uh, even the ones that are on their uh, deathbed. Um, and it's just um, unbelievable, uh, given how crowded that territory is, that the uh, Palestinians don't know uh, what uh, Hamas has, uh, what they've uh, been up to, uh, are unaware that um, the uh, water pipes that brought fresh water to Palestinian civilians the pipes given by uh, well-meaning Scandinavian uh, NGOs, which were all dug up by Hamas and mm. turned into missiles uh, being mm. used to uh, kill uh, Israelis. Um, you can't just rip up that many pipes and convert them uh, without people uh, realizing, oh, uh, the water's gone off. Wonder why? Oh, the pipe's no longer there. Oh, what happened? Uh, so... Uh, I think the uh, Palestinians are well aware of Hamas's uh, tactics. It's a brutality, but they simply don't have the uh, strength to um, rise up against them uh, mm. within uh, the Gaza Strip. And um, very difficult for them to um, leave such homes uh, as they um, had. Uh, before uh, October 7th and go elsewhere uh, for seeking a better life. John Curtin with us, director of the G7 Research Group, G20 Research Group at the Global Health Diplomacy Program, University of Toronto, commenting on humanitarian pause and the chance of with the Israeli-Hamas war. John, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, you too. Uh, the headline in the National Post, Trudeau's curious decision to detonate his own carbon tax, says Tristan Hopper. Ottawa's carve-out almost tailor-made to discredit the two main reasons for having a, a carbon tax in the first place. Only supposed to be a little carve-out, intended to keep Atlantic Canada happy uh, and give the Liberals a fighting chance of winning the next election. Instead, the rather naked politicking, the article says, of the home heating oil exemption has set events in motion that threaten to spin apart one of the Trudeau government's most signature policies to talk more about all of this daniel perry consultant summa strategies and here now daniel thanks for the time hope you're well same to you scott uh daniel i guess my first question is did they think that nobody would notice i mean you give one kid one thing and none to the rest uh, they're gonna act up did they not see this coming <laughs> well if, as a father justin Trudeau should have known better that just when you give one child something and not the other, that they will not stop complaining until they get it as well. And that's what we're seeing from the rest of the premiers here in Canada. Um, there, there's a lot of frustration outside of the Atlantic provinces, and I think rightfully so. 
So what do you do now? Again, it seems that uh, a lot of this stuff isn't tested before it's released. How do you how do you mop up here? Uh, you're going to need a big mop and a big bucket. There's a there's a lot of doo doo to get through on this one, Scott. Um, I think what the biggest issue the prime minister has to address in this, he either has to just hopefully wait it out, and I don't know if he, he can do that right now because people are pretty angry across Canada. It's odd that uh, voters outside of Atlantic Canada are not too happy about this. Um, or he can just hold uh, hold and just change path and just clearly say we'll take it off all home heating uh, that uses oil because in, the average Canadian doesn't use uh, oil. Only 3% mm-hmm. of Canadians do. So he might be able to do it that way, but he's in a tough situation. Even that, what you just said, Daniel, seems like an easy fix for this that won't have a lot of impact. Why not just do it? That is a great question. I'm sure they're having that conversation right now uh, here in Ottawa. It would be a simple thing. Uh, it will even the playing field across Canada. Uh, again, most people in Canada do not use oil. It's mainly in Atlantic Canada. So by doing this, you kind of level the playing field. You say the rules are for everyone and you're still benefiting those in those key electoral districts that you really need to keep on side that the liberals have lost. That being said, would that penalize those that are using cleaner forms of energy, whether it's natural <laughs> gas or propane? And is that fair? Uh, I would say it's definitely not fair, but politics isn't fair. Uh, in, in that sense, uh, the reasonable thing, I think the most political answer to this question would be just to exempt all um, heating from it, you're going to have to take a little bit yeah. of egg on your face in the conservative saying, I told you so. But at the end of the day, if you're looking to regain voters' trust, regain their interest in your party, this could be a simple measure uh, that would do that. So that being said, does doing that discredit the carbon tax? What are the chances of that happening? It absolutely discredits how the Liberals say that the rebate offsets any costs. It's very clear that it's not, not, not the case for a lot of Canadians, especially those in Atlantic Canada, that are seeing the brunt of this, especially out east. It only came into effect uh, in July, and they're seeing a lot of added costs and a lot of hindrance for the Liberals in terms of their re-election chances because of this. Um, so, yeah, it does fly in the face of it, but... It, at the end of the day, politics is about governing and winning, and you'll be amazed at what politicians will do to keep their job. Uh, so do you see this being changed or or another offer uh, that's more equal before or between now and what could be a federal election? Uh, I, I definitely think that the Conservatives would love this to be the election topic we run on. They've run the past three elections, somewhat looking to change the carbon tax, two out of the three looking to exit. Um, and I think that they are very confident that if we go to an election right now, this would be the election issue and they would be able to win. For the government, I think they're going to look to try to flip the script a little bit and try to put this issue to bed. So I can definitely see them backtracking and making this an exemption for all home heating, even if they have to grudgingly do it. Uh, the prime minister has a hard time apologizing. Will he need to do that? How do you position this? That is a very good political communications question. Uh, I think it's positioning it as we heard from Canadians that they're frustrated. I, Justin Trudeau, am listening and responding to your frustration, and I'm here to help all Canadians. And by doing this, I'm understanding that this will be the best measure to make sure Canadians have heat uh, in their homes at an affordable price. Another arrival to the party after the guests have left? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It, it won't look good for the government. They're going to have a couple of bad days of press because of it. 
But I think at the end of the day, the weeks that they've gone through have already just getting hit over the head with it. It's just not worth it at this rate. If they have any common sense left there, they'll they'll make a move. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, the Prime Minister, and the handling of the carbon tax. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, as you've heard on the news and for the last little while, uh, the HSR is on track for a strike tomorrow. Uh, Eric Tuck is with us, President of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. Uh, hopefully, we can get this moving on. I know you spoke to Rick Samperin earlier this morning. Good morning, uh, Hamilton. And there was, you know, a stalemate. The strike is on. Has there been any progress, any communication over the course of, of the afternoon? Absolutely none, Scott. Uh, I've been uh, by my phone all day, and uh, it hasn't run. So it looks like, uh, well, I'll let you describe. What happens uh, next? Yeah, so obviously, uh, if we hear nothing by uh, by the end of the day, we will be out on strike, and there will be no bus service uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, any reason to believe there's going to be some sort of last-minute magic here? No, I, I don't believe so. I think uh, something was going to happen. I would have received the call by now. Um, so we've uh, put all our strike protocols into place, and we're prepared to walk out uh, at the end of service tonight. So what does that mean for uh, customers and such? What will we see moving forward uh, tomorrow if nothing is resolved? Yes, so uh, obviously there won't be any buses on the uh, on the streets tomorrow, and uh, people are going to have to find their way uh, without the bus service, unfortunately. And it's, uh, it's certainly not something we take lightly. Um, we, we value our passengers, and we haven't had any disruptions for 25 years. Uh, so... It's certainly not something we ever wanted to uh, to go to that length, but at some point you have to draw that line in the sand, and it has been drawn. Uh, sticking point wages here, Eric. Is that where is that where we are? Yes, uh, it definitely is uh, coming down to wages. Uh, as you know, the employer made an offer, a final offer, uh, and my members rejected that offer by ninety four percent, and there's been no movement on their side since. Uh, the union remains ready to go back to the bargaining table, uh, and if they're uh, they're looking to put some kind of a different offer that uh, is is enhanced in any way, we're certainly willing to look at it. How close were you? Still way off. Uh, I would say we're we're still about a one and a half percent off uh, per year. What do you want the uh, What do you want the uh, the city or the the citizens to What message do you have for the citizens for the taxpayers What do you want them to know in all of this What's the message So so look our members are just looking for fairness uh, We as you know the uh, eleven hundred non union uh, bargaining uh, unit uh, members who don't belong to a union received a 4% increase. Many of them are, are earning salaries between 120 and 160000 They also got a market adjustment of between 1% and 11%. In fact, I know many of them that got double-digit uh, increases this year alone. Um, you know, I know one individual at 130000 got a 10% increase overnight, so they got a $13,000 raise. Uh, most of our members are earning... Uh, uh, operators are earning about seventy-one thousand, 
uh, and we're looking for a 5% raise. How do you, uh, again, obviously, Eric, this is tough to balance because many people are complaining they don't want the taxes going up because, you know, obviously it is the taxpayers in the end that are, that are handling that. How do you, how do you justify that? How do you, how do you sell it to them? Yeah, so listen, we understand there's a 14% uh, tax uh, increase on the table right now. Uh, but somehow the the, the uh, city council found the money to give this increase to those 1,100 workers uh, who are earning those larger salaries. And many of them are working from home three days a week. Uh, my members were on the front lines, worked every day throughout the pandemic, and uh, they still remain on the job full time. We, uh, we have much different working conditions than many of those individuals. Uh, as you know, we, uh, we, we work split shifts. Many of us work actually, you know, 12 and 14 hour days to get paid eight to 10 hours a day. Um, so we have much different working conditions. Uh, we're, we're also uh, subject to uh, swearing, spitting, uh, assault, uh, and we don't have access, ready access to bathrooms. So uh, we, we have much uh, tougher working conditions and we want the council to respect that and Listen, you found the money for the non non uh, unionized staff, the bureaucrats that are making the 120 to 160 thousand. Find it for the frontline staff uh, that are are there, are there every day and and committed to delivering the service. Uh, moving forward, uh, is what do you think it's going to take in order to resolve this? Are, are these hard are these hard figures, hard uh, lines in the sand that that won't be moved either direction? How long are you gonna are you prepared to dig in for? So I can tell you the resolve on the part of my members. Uh, I've been told very clearly we'll be there. We'll be out on that picket line as long as we have to be to get a fair deal. Um, you know, negotiations take two, uh, two partners that are willing to move towards the middle. Uh, we, we actually went back to the table yesterday because the employer asked us to come back. Uh, they presented us with picket, picket protocols. They, they didn't have anything to offer. They weren't willing to move off of their offer at all. Uh, and as long as they're continued to take that stance that they're not going to move off their offer, uh, unfortunately, we can't move towards the middle either. Eric, does this have or is the upcoming LRT play into this in any way? Operation maintenance, is that all part of this or is it part of it in any way? So uh, obviously we did introduce language uh, to try and strengthen what we have. We think we have pretty good language uh, currently in the contract. We do believe that work belongs to us. Um, We've both kind of parked that to the side because we know that's going to be a bigger fight with Metrolink. So that's not a sticking block at this point in time. Uh, we know we're going to be taking that that fight to Metrolink and to the uh, provincial government. Uh, you know, we're down to the brass tacks now, and and city council just needs to make a fair offer uh, along the lines that they did with the non-union staff. Eric Tuck with us, President Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, set to strike on Thursday. Uh, it looks like two sides still far apart. Eric, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You also. All right. We have been hearing a lot lately about the RCMP, left hand not knowing what the right hand seems to be doing. Uh, but beyond that, are they poorly structured to meet the growing challenges to Canada's safety and security, including interference from foreign ad- adversary, ad- adversaries? To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm doing well, Scott. How are you this evening? So far, so good. Phil, we've talked about this a lot, and you've talked about and mentioned that perhaps they don't have the tools that are needed. Why doesn't this work? People think the RCMP is like the FBI, that uh, there's nothing they can't access. Why is this not working? I, I think the main reason, Scott, is it tries to be too many things to too, too many people. So one of the criticisms is that the RCMP carries out what's called contract policing which essentially is that set of agreements with, with the eight of the 10 provinces, with the exception of Ontario and Quebec, where they, provo- where they provide provincial policing duties and municipal, and many municipalities that don't want to pay for their own police forces. So I, I think we're asking them to do too much. And as a consequence, uh, they can't do everything at the same time. They have limited resources. And so this parliamentary committee has criticized them for not focusing on the national security issues. So is this a time to pull the RCMP out of communities where there is no other policing and make them truly a federal force? Who's going to pay for the policing then? I mean, Surrey went yeah. through this a little while ago. The mayor said, we're, we're, we're carrying up the contract. We're going to create our own police force. How much does that cost, Scott, to create a police force from scratch? Like, a, you know, a buck and a half and a cup of coffee at yeah. No, it doesn't. So we have to ask the question, why is contract policing there in the first place? And I'm guessing it's because... Provinces and municipalities didn't want to pay for it. They want the feds to pay for it. So you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So we have to decide, you know, who do we want doing our policing? And if we don't want contract policing, that's fine. But somebody has to pony up the cash to, you know, fill the space that the RCP has been providing in Canada for decades. So what what do they need on the foreign interference front? What do they need to do what they need to be doing as a national service protecting the country? Where are they lacking? Well, I think one of the things is that, you know, obviously the relationship with Jesus, where I used to work, uh, it's a good relationship. It's had its challenges over the years. Of course, Jesus came out of the old RCMP security service back in 84. I think that relationship has to get better in terms of sharing of information. I mean, foreign interference is a major file for Jesus to carry out under Section 2B of its act, the Jesus Act. So I think a lot's being done, but sometimes maybe there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And then the other issue at part of this, Scott, is, of course, is that Jesus has lots of great info. Uh, but it's not evidentiary in nature. It's intelligence. So we have to figure out how to use intelligence in Canada in ways that other countries have figured out, like the Americans and the Brits, uh, to get successful prosecutions and to you know, put a stop to foreign interference, whether it's in elections or harassing Canadians or whatever. What can, uh, what can or should governments do uh, to, to, to help this, to, to find a solution for this issue? Well, I'd say throw more money at it, but what's the deficit at now, Scott? <laughs> I hesitate to ask. I think people have to put on their grown-up pants and decide, what do we want our police forces here in Canada to do? I mean, do we want each province to have a provincial force? I understand Alberta is thinking about creating a provincial force. What about municipalities and small towns? Do they want to create their own police forces, or do they want to stick with contract policing? So I think we have to have a dialogue on who's who in the zoo, uh, who has what responsibilities and who's willing to pay for it at the end of the day? Is this not already going on in the local level? Because if you look back over the last couple of decades, there's been plenty of cases where the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. When one police service does one thing and another police service does another, ego get in the way, whatever. They don't communicate uh, the, communicate the way they should with, with others, with each other. That has, that, isn't that changed on the policing service at the local level? Why can't we do it here? We saw the same thing in Ottawa with yeah. the, you know, the screw up with the, with the convoy and such, and the left hand didn't seem to know what the other was doing and blame the other. 
Yeah, that's a great plan. I think Freedom Convoy is a great example where, you know, one jurisdiction had information and didn't necessarily get shared. I think a lot of it, Scott, has to do with egos. I think a lot of it has to do with jurisdictional responsibility. I mean, you think back to the terrorist attack back in 2014 in Parliament. I mean, you had four, you had four or five different security forces of jurisdiction on Parliament Hill. So no wonder the left hand. We have several left hands and several right hands, maybe some left and right feet going on here as well. So I think we have to, again, have a serious dialogue about policing. It's a big country. We have, we have a, you know, a huge landmass to police to figure out who's best to do it, who's best to carry out what particular aspect and what jurisdiction. And uh, we have, if we have to reinvent it, fine, let's reinvent it. We have some fine people working in, in law enforcement across our country, whether it's provincial, municipal, or, or, or federal. Let's just give them the tools they need and resources and try to figure out what the lines in the road are. Did we not learn anything from the Ottawa convoy? I mean, what happened? What would happen if all of a sudden it happened next week? W- would we be better prepared for it? I wish I could say yes, but you know what? The, the problem is, is that we in Canada have a nasty habit of, of you know, parliamentary oversight and reviews and, and committees and inquiries. My God, Scott, everything deserves a royal commission in Canada, it seems. And they have all types of, you know, 80 or 90 recommendations. And it seems to me that very few of them are actually acted upon. This is best of my knowledge. So I, I don't have an answer to your question. I, I think, again, I think we have the, the right people. I just think we have to coordinate it better at, at multiple levels of government. And it's, and it's not made easier by the fact that we do have municipal, provincial, federal, and indigenous government in this country. That's a lot of, a lot of seats at the table, a lot of egos clashing. And maybe we have to um, put on our grown-up pants and do it better. So who takes the lead on something like this? Is this uh, the federal government's responsibility? Who takes the lead and, and gets it done? Because it doesn't really seem, I'm sure it's a difficult task, but it, it seems to be common sense. Yeah, I don't have a lot of confidence in the feds right now, given the, the complete schlamazel over the Chinese interference affair, which the federal government ignores intelligence from CSIS. I don't know who has to be at the table. I, I, I think you know, the RCMP is a federal force. Obviously, it also, as I said, performs provincial and municipal duties. Uh, so the feds have to get serious about policing and national security um, and deal with the provinces. But you, you, I mean, I've learned also as a Canadian, Scott, when you put the provinces and the feds in the same room, uh, they don't always get along very well. So, I, I mean, I don't think there's any, any easy answer to this question. And I think you and I will be having the same conversation two years from now. Uh, do you think that a change in government could change this? Or is this, is this like turning the Titanic? It may, if you have a government in power that seems to care more about policing and national security issues. I've argued for a long time that one thing Canada lacks uh, is an intelligence culture. And I'm biased, obviously, having spent 30 years in it. But that that lack of intelligence culture didn't start when Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015. Earlier governments of conservative in nature also didn't use intelligence well. So I I think we have a lot of lessons to learn. And we can probably learn from our closest allies, like the Americans and the Brits, to do things better. Um, I'm hopeful that we have the right people in the right places. They'll get this situation and take appropriate action to do it sooner rather than later. But um, I hate to be a skeptic, Scott. I, I can't even try to be optimistic, because, but on this one, the, the, the track record ain't that good. Um, what will it take in order to get people more serious about uh, interference, for example, election interference, if we haven't got there already? Again, as I mentioned earlier, the Ottawa convoy, the whole idea, uh, you know, with inquiries and committees and such was to make sure uh, that we were prepared for it. If not that, what has to happen before we change our direction, before we realize what's happening? I hate to say this, but something major has to happen. 
um, either a significant terrorist attack, which I pray to God never happens in our country, or such a blatant example of interference where an election was actually swung thanks to the influence of a foreign power. Maybe then Canadians will take security seriously and put pressure on government, but Right now, it doesn't seem to be a priority for either the government or Canadians in general. You and I have lots of conversations, Scott, and, yeah. you know, to the benefit of your listeners, but is the average Canadian listening to this? I really have no idea. So sometimes people react better when bad things really happen, but uh, it's kind of sad comment on human nature. It might take that to actually get us to uh, pay attention. Does something like the Israeli-Hamas war change people's attitudes, bring it to the forefront? It's too far away. It's across the ocean. Um, it doesn't really affect us, despite the fact Canadians were involved. You saw the protests, the pro-Palestinian and pro-Hamas protests. You've seen anti-Semitic events in Canada. Again, maybe something, maybe somebody has to die. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to have to say. Maybe that's what gets people attention. I really have no idea. I, I wish I had a better answer for you, Scott. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, talking about the RCMP and the growing challenges they face around Canada's safety and security. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, my friend. Take care. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of The Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is coming up after the 6 o'clock news and here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you are well, dry and warm and all that. I, You know what, Scott? When I went out to get into my car to drive down to the station today, there was snow or ice or something <laughs> yeah. on the windshield. And it was like, yeah. all right, we're that's where we are now. That's where we are. But you wait a week from now, we're up in the double digits. We could hit like 15 degrees. Well, let's, we can only hope, right? I mean, we were talking about this the other day. I, I'm, I've become a big fan now of the whole global warming thing. Bring up the temperature. We need to have <laughs> palm trees in this city. I'm tired of the snow already. But anyway, I, All I right. Uh, HSR poised to go on strike, mm-hmm. uh, as of tomorrow. First time in, uh, in quite a long time that they've done that. I guess different scenario now because we've just all lived through a global pandemic and many of those that, uh, hadn't gone on strike for a while have enjoyed that, uh, that right here. So do you think this is going to be a long one? I think the last one was a couple of months, three months. I, th- I think it was three months. I, so here's my prediction. I hate doing predictions, but here's my prediction on this one. If we don't have a resolution to this one in the first like two or three days, because I suspect that l- there will be a big push to get something done quickly. But if we get past that first two, three, four days, uh, you know what? The gap is large enough between what is being offered and what's being asked for that I could see this going on for a while. I could. Does this harm the brand or are there those basic loyal customers that will always be there and jump on board back uh, when things uh, resume? I, I don't know if it's got anything to do with the brand. I think it's got to do with people who need to get around and need the HSR will jump on because they have to. They don't have much choice. Yeah. Um, there, There is no that I'm aware of. I mean, there's Uber and stuff, but there's not a second transit system that you could say, oh, HSR wants to go out fine. I'll, I'll now direct my business to something else. There, there isn't. So it's a monopoly and you're kind of stuck. And if it's not there, it's not there for you. Ridership pausing or certainly lowering during the pandemic and such. Uh, now that that's over, does it matter or is the service there? Are people, are, are people still as supportive of this as they always were or once were? Well, Scott, here's the thing that um, becomes, I think, and now, you know, there are numbers that are out there about where things are going with transit numbers and everything else. And, and certainly, you know, council and those who are supportive of the LRT, for example, want to say 
transit riding is going to go up and maybe it will, but we're also looking and not just us at downtowns have changed a lot since COVID. A lot of people working from home altogether or partially, and that's people who aren't necessarily taking a bus or a LRT or a subway or whatever somewhere. Uh, Toronto, they, they were talking yesterday or the day before that they say they need provincial help to help with TTC because numbers have not come back to where they were. And so you look and you say, okay, well, if the numbers that we're hearing about immigration and the size of Hamilton, how much it's going to grow by 2030, was it supposed to go up by like 850,000 or some, some wild number? Um, yeah, you would expect that transit numbers will rise. But is that on a per capita basis? And, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of questions about this because downtowns, which is lower cities, which is where the bulk in this city, certainly is you're not talking Flamborough, you're not talking Dundas, Stony Creek, Ancaster, it's the lower city in the central mountain. Uh, those areas, people are, as I say, when people are working from home, there's not as many people needing to get on those buses. Uh, I just got a note from somebody, uh, Scott, what's your take on the bus strike? And and how do you weigh in on that? I mean, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, look to other countries, look to other situations that are doing it right. As you know, I was in Europe for on a vacation, and we were in Switzerland for a while. And, you know, everybody points to the Swiss, especially if you're using social programs and such as time, uh, you know, as an example of how to get things done. But I think the difference between socialism there and here is that uh, there they get things done done. They very much take care of their people, but they're also incredibly inventive and genius. Their engineering feats are, uh, are are unbelievable. I mean, you know, you go from one city to another, you go through uh, 20 uh, tunnels, uh, through mountains that, 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 sur- that go in a circle. And so it's not like it's one extreme or the other. They, it seems in, in North America, we're a land of extremes where it's all like this or all like that. Whereas there, the countries that seem to be doing it right, uh, they take care of their people, but they still believe in building stuff. Well, yeah. And Switzerland's an interesting example and I, I've not been. And so maybe, I mean, I've seen, I've watched videos of, as you say, the trains through the mountains and things like that. But as far as, as far as the public transit, and I don't mean things like those trains that are going right across the country. I mean, within, yeah, within Zurich or within Lucerne or wherever else, most of those cities are designed from the beginning very differently from ours. Yeah. And so, you know, the same thing we hear about, for example, in Holland, in the Netherlands all the time. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a cycling city, Amsterdam. Yep. Mm-hmm. Amsterdam geographically is not remotely comparable to how Hamilton looks no. geographically. No. You can't just say no. they do it so we can do it. It's not even close to the same. And what people forget, and I was, again, we flew out of there, is that, you know, as, as much and, and as many bicycles and the infrastructure that they have for them, they have the infrastructure for everything. You, as you go to, uh, the airport in, in Amsterdam, you will pass many freeways. You will see gridlock. You will see, uh, uh rush hour as you do here, but, they they do everything. They try to find a mix, and it's the same with energy. I watch barge after barge of coal go up and down the Rhine River uh, next to wind turbines and nuclear, and there's nothing in between, but at least they use everything they have. Here we're in a land of extremes where if you're to the left, you look after people, but you don't build anything. If you're on the right, you build stuff, but you don't look after people, and I don't think that's what these countries are about. 
we simplify these arguments way too much. And, we, and, and again, people, you know, whether it's politicians or whomever come back from a trip like you had and they say, oh, I saw what they did there and we've got yeah. to bring that here. That is, that's not really, I don't, th- I mean, you can no. use examples and ideas, but I'm mm-hmm. not sure that's really helpful to try and jam uh, a round peg into a square hole. We have to solve the problems we have with the challenges that we have, and they're not the same as what's over there. They just aren't. Well said. All right, uh, Scott Radley, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Coming from Mr. Lowe with Remembrance Day falling on Saturday this year and with World War II veterans fading fast into history, we need to pause, remember, and if possible, attend a Remembrance Day service this year. Perhaps the greatest gratitude and respect we can give all veterans and those who continue to serve is to wear a poppy and pause and give thanks on the 11th hour of November 11th. Keep right except to pass. 